Christopher Pratt, who's one of Canada's best-known and most revered artists. He's also a writer. He's written... Uh, these are poems that have been written over the past 50 years, but they've been collected in a painter's poems published in 2005. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, I'd like to talk a bit about your recent exhibition at The Rooms, which is a beautiful new facility in St. John's. It's like your provincial museum and archives. Yes, it's all of those things, an art gallery. I'd like to just provide you with a bit of feedback on your art, and perhaps then if we can compare it to your poetry. Emptiness, solitude, a sense of abandonment, simplicity, cleanliness, almost spotlessly clean. These are, these are now I'm talking about many of the paintings that you you produced that deal with rooms and buildings. Although they are almost photorealistic, there's a certain surrealism about them that's profoundly moving. You leave people out of them. You leave all the dirt out of them. And yet they're not sterile. And it seems to me that all of these qualities of your work are qualities of the best kind of poetry. This is the kind of approach, I think, that a lot of poets use mm -hmm. when they use words. Yes. It's very close to being real, but it's not real. Exactly, exactly. There, there's a lot of emotion or f that, that comes up, but often it's because there, it's not said in the poem. Mm -hmm. And this is the, my sense of how you work as a painter. Would that be correct? In, in many ways, although not as a conscious uh, strategy in my studio or on any given day, with respect to the, to the things that you describe, and you describe them accurately and fairly, uh, the sense of abandonment, the fact that the whole thing is tidied up, as it were, spotless, and the work for that reason has from time to time been thought to be sterile and without feeling. Whatever they say about me as a person or my character or lack of same, these are really aesthetic judgments. They're things that I encounter and things that I, adjustments that I want to make to the image, purely in terms of the systems inside the painting that I'm making, because essentially what I'm doing is making a painting. Mm -hmm. Or to back off uh, from that a little bit, I'm making a picture. And uh, what I'm making a picture of comes from my imagination, experience, real sources, and whatever, but it doesn't exist until the, the picture is finished. And um, I can honestly say that I never think about these things, and I had very little occasion to think about them until people started to ask me, and then, of course, I'd say, well, I wonder why I do this. And uh, do, I, do I want the whole world to look like this? Do I want the clapboard always to be level? Do I want roads to have the kind of curves that I give them? I, you know, I could go on and on. Do you want everything to be orderly? But, but I ask myself, would I want the world to be like that in reality? And the answer is no, I wouldn't. No. But I want the painting to be like that. I want the aesthetics of the painting to be like that. So it's almost a contrast with reality. It is a contrast with reality, but then 
art is not reality, and that's, that's a very basic observation. It's not mine alone. For me, uh, because I had done some painting before I went to art school, uh, making paintings had never been an issue of reproducing reality. It, it had been about making something other than reality. So the business of drawing a sphere or a box or a cone uh, and eventually um, still life and then uh, extensive training of drawing from the model, uh, the experience of actually recording verbatim reality was uh, was quite new to me. What What's fascinating about your work is that it, uh, by the fact that you leave things out of it, or particularly people, you, you give a perspective often of looking out a window or looking along a highway that mm-hmm. I might be driving along. It might be me looking out the window. It might be me driving behind the windshield. And again, that's why I like the the comparison with poetry, you're putting me in a place that will allow me to replicate your feeling, your perception, in your place in a way. When when I'm asked where are the people in my paintings, I mean, you come up with a lot of flip answers because after a little while you you just have to for your own sanity and you say, well, they, they've gone out to lunch, you know, they just left, you know, they were there, they were there when I painted the, when I did the painting, I don't know, I don't even know why they've gone. But it is true to say that I think of myself as the person in the painting. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm the person who's there, I'm the person who's in this space. Well, you do say that, too, in a beautiful way, I think, that, well, first of all, you talk about ghosts, but the mm-hmm. fact that you're present in all of them, and that that's right. We're living, but we, we're spirits that, that could be the ghosts of the future. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I feel that presence in this house. I've lived here now for 43 years, and uh, or for 12 of those years, I was here essentially by myself, entirely by myself. And I'm not now because uh, my partner, Jeanette, lives with me. If there was anything supernatural to be seen, I would have encountered in that, in that period of time. And but, you didn't. But I didn't. I absolutely didn't. Although you, the, one of the most uh, striking paintings in your in the exhibition is out of one of these windows, and um, and the, my daughter termed it mysterious. Yes, and it, I think that would be the painting called Half Moon and Bright Stars, and it's it's based on my bedroom window, and uh, I've done three paintings of that window, and in each in each painting the proportions of the window, uh, the properties of the window, the hardware, the surround and whatnot, have been changed to suit the aesthetics and the objective of the painting that I was making. But I did wake up one morning, and uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, and there was the moon. The stars weren't where I had to justify them in terms of the design of the painting. There was the moon and and the uh, pond, which we can see looking out the window here now, it's just this, it's the kind of confrontation with infinity and eternity and all those words that come to mind. You're in the warmth and comfort of your bed. And uh, there's just a little veil of time and a little veil of atmosphere shielding you from the eternal geophysical, which in terms of our animal being and our human consciousness, the, the fact that we are 
this this miracle that we are matter that knows it is matter, mm-hmm. uh, whereas what you're looking at is is the same stuff. It's just not assembled the way you are. I don't expect to get any, any of that into a painting. I don't expect people to look at that particular painting and come to these conclusions. But the fact that your daughter uh, observed it as mysterious um, serves me serves me very well because these are mysteries, they will always be mysteries. They're not capable of, of resolution in any terms we understand. For me, they have a pictorial capacity. There's a way somehow or other our romantic associations with the moon, uh, the shelter of a room, the moonlight on water, you, you know, in many ways they're corny and they're trivial, trivial and yet they're the only way uh, in which we've ever that we've ever found really at that level. Because I'm not talking about religions or great philosophies, but in at, at an ordinary level, to be part of it, and that is to be, I don't know, part of the wonder. Just of yeah, it. just in the presence of of that that mystery, and it, it, it's interesting. There's such a there's an absence in your work that puts you in the presence of the mystery. People talk about loneliness in my work, but I distinguish between aloneness and loneliness. Mm-hmm. I like aloneness, but I don't like to be lonely. It's just sort of like you're alone, but you don't have a fear or it doesn't upset you or make you sad because you know that you don't have to be alone. That's it, exactly. It's not the loneliness of rejection, yeah. of friendlessness, of isolation. Which is often that kind of loneliness is the loneliness that the poet experiences. I think that's true, but uh, to the extent that there's a loneliness in my work, I don't think of it that way, and I don't want it that way. No, in fact, it's interesting the, the way the, a lot of your work invites the viewer to participate in it, so that the, the loneliness is not not something that, that that comes to mind when looking at it. It's more you're sharing, you're participating in it, in the observation of things. Yeah, but that gets to be after the fact, mm. in a way, because there's also an element of, isn't it nice that I've got this all to myself? Yeah. About it. You know, essentially, in terms of communication and uh, self-expression and whatnot, I suppose that's inherently present in anything you do that you put forward as evidence of your own being and yourself. But uh, whatever I do, certainly with my paintings, I do entirely for my own satisfaction. And when people ask me, you know, well, how can you bear to part with them? Well, first of all, it's my living. But secondly, the satisfaction is in the realization, the making and the realization of the object, of the painting itself. And I wouldn't say that after that it just becomes... Uh, material property having some fiscal value. It's the same, I'm absolutely certain it's the same with a writer or, or a musician that it, uh, unless you're doing a specific assignment and you know it's got to sell, the structure of it, the whole, you don't care about other things. You just care about the satisfaction that you get from its making, your sense that it's good, yeah. You, you know your, your sense of fulfillment your sense of exactly. achieving exactly a goal that you set out for yourself exactly and then after after the fact 
if your publisher likes it and you sell three and a half million copies. There's only one of your paintings, though, but I suppose we could do uh, prints or whatever. Well, it, it doesn't work that way for painters. <laughs> no, uh, but of course. I'm, I'm not making, wanting to make an overt comparison. Really, what I'm saying is that is sort of an, an adjunct satisfaction. Yes. Yeah, that, that, this is exactly what uh, Paul Muldoon, the, the, the well-known uh, American-Irish poet, has, has said. It's the epiphany is in the actual creation. Exactly. Getting it right. Yeah. And then... Once that's happened, well, that, that's, those are your children that you sort of let off into the universe and people can react uh, in whichever way they wish to, but it's uh, the, your pleasure, you've got the fulfillment of having ever created this and it's now on to something else. And of course, it's a very good analogy because like your children, you will defend whichever one is under tag. <laughs> well, I, you know, I like these three poems, but I don't like that one. Why not? It's certainly as good as the other poems. What's wrong with you? <laughs> they're, all from, they're all from my they're loins, all, right? They're all from, my, from the <laughs> loins of my spirit or whatever. Yeah, I'm speaking with uh, Christopher Pratt, well-known and admired Canadian painter and, uh, and also a poet, a writer. I'd like to move to a painter's poems. This is a collection of your poetry that has been published recently, 2005, by Breakwater Books in St. John's, Newfoundland. We've been talking about your paintings. There's a, an absence in them, mm -hmm. which I find very appealing and powerful and draws the viewer in. And typically, the best poetry often leaves unsaid the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Your poetry, though, I find talks a lot about the seasons, about lights in windows, about rain, particularly the seasons, though. I didn't find the absence, perhaps looking for something similar in the poetry, but didn't find mm -hmm. that. How to begin on that? Um, first of all, I've written poetry as long as I've made paintings, probably longer. And it, it, it was sort of a family tradition. We made fun of popular songs by changing the words. When I was in school, I wrote dirty little ditties for the, amaze, for the uh, amusement of my companions. A lot, of, a lot of kids wind up doing that. And when we exchanged Christmas gifts in our family, the gifts were usually accompanied by a poem, essentially doggerel, usually making light or making fun of the recipient of the poem, of, of the gift. Uh, often hinting in a, in a kind of a punning way at its contents, showing some appropriate self-depreciation in the poem. I mean, these are analytical terms that I bring to it afterwards, but when I think about the kind of things we wrote, um, that was it. So there was this tradition of, of doing that. With respect to the things that I do, uh, there are three things that I do, essentially, in this regard. I make paintings, I keep a diary, and I write poetry. And each of these is a vehicle for its own content, obviously. To come to the poetry, which is the topic at hand. Now, I, I never thought about this till I've been asked about it. So I've been asked about it, so I've had to rationalize it and figure out what, why do I do this? And I think it's accurate and fair and not entirely after the fact to say that po the poetry has become for me a vehicle for 
things that concern me or things that I excuse me encounter or find interesting that don't seem to fit in my diaries that I don't want to put in my diaries and that I have no visual language for um, in, in terms of in terms of my painting mm. when I say visual language um, I think for example that a, a lot of the concerns that I have with human relationships mm. they're not in my paintings the figures aren't there that kind of tension is not happening but and there there are things that are to me too subtle or too personal to be entered in just straight up prose in a diary mm -hmm. and those things I I put into poetry essentially as an adjunct to my diaries that's as close as I can come to giving you an answer I mean they talk you talk about poetry as being an attempt to express the inexpressible it strikes me that you're a very very private yes. person and this would be a way for you to to express some deep felt concerns or pleasures or pains that your painting hasn't allowed you to do or you're just writing it out. Is this correct? Yes, that's exactly right. And in many cases, it's in a, it's in a personal code. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm saying my reading of these poems is that they, they actually aren't that personal. I find just, having, just reading them, there's, there's a lot to do with, as I said, with the seasons and with, with rain and with color and uh, mm -hmm. with, with your problem of flowers and birds and the names of months. That's right, and, uh, and, those, and those things are important to me, but in, in many cases they are a code in the sense that they are keys that they are things that I associate with, with events that I'm discussing with myself yeah. but not laying bare. It seems I was able to engage, I think, more with the paintings than mm -hmm. the poems. Although there is one poem I'd like you to read because I think it probably, at least from what I can see, uh, is is the one that that is the most personal, mm -hmm. and it's called "I Had Already Written Poetry for You." Yeah, yeah. I had already written poetry for you. I had said rhetorically. You are a symphony of pink and gold, a song of white and blue. Forgive me my small jealousies. I could not bear to think of you in someone else's arms. For all you shielded me from that reality, I feared the silent evidence, the echo of a foreign substance on your lips, a different rhythm on your breath. Did I tell you that one night I dreamed about a perfect meadow, shining, square, polished by the sharp salt air, filled everywhere with flowers and waving grass. It didn't seem that anyone had trodden there. You brought me petals every morning, fresh until I held the mangle to the light, where I could see that something had passed over them at night. That's beautiful. I'm sorry I goofed the line in there. It's okay, because that's what we got the, the editing yeah. software for. Yeah. This was beautiful to me because I pick up on um, this d desire for the woman that you love to be pure and to be uh, virginal mm -hmm. and uh, not to have had a past mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is although I accept the fact that in normal life this is impossible yeah. and uh, it's 
although it is expressed in physical terms, it's not just concerned with physical things. Uh, in in my coding of it, uh, it might have to do with influences and attitudes uh, that w- that would somehow or other, I wouldn't say taint, uh, but perhaps color or even scent is not an un- unfair word. That was that was actually. Um, a more explicit poem before we edited it down. There are parts of it that uh, that didn't get in there. And, you know, one of the things... I've, I've been writing poetry, as, as you know, the thing go, covers about 50 years. 50 years, yeah. And... Uh, Is this the first collection of Yes. Poems? Yeah. And several times over the you know past 25 or 30 years, so many people have said to me, well, why don't you publish your poetry? And... Uh, Frankly, I had as much encouragement as discouragement from people, as I say in the introduction, people who were well disposed to me said, no, Chris, don't do it. And other people said, yes, you know, why not now? Don't do it because they didn't want you to reveal things about yourself, or don't do it because they didn't think they were worthy of being published? There were, there were both factors. In some cases, people felt they weren't worthy of being published, and somebody might look at them and say, well... There's not much here. Maybe I better have a look at his paintings. There might not be much there either. There was that fact. But then there were other people who knew me certainly well enough to the point where if their judgment was qualitative, that wouldn't have bothered them as much as the, as the personal aspect of it. Right. Finally, I reached the point when I thought, well, as we say, if not now, when? I mean, I sort of had it as a motto. I had two mottos on my studio wall each of them which I genuinely believed I had coined myself, but I probably hadn't. And uh, one was, life is not a rehearsal. And life is not a rehearsal. I mean, if you're a religious person, you might feel that it's a rehearsal for the hereafter. If you believe in reincarnation, well, maybe it's a a rehearsal for being a decent cow or whatever you want to come back as. But if, yeah, if you don't do a good job with this, though, you yeah. pay for it in the next one. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, you're on stage live. Every day you walk on stage live, and you're, you're only rehearsed for the foreseen. You're never rehearsed for the unforeseen. You, you need to get on with it. So that motivated you to, to publish this because you wanted to get it out to see the response? Not, not particularly. I was, I was afraid of the response at some level. I was afraid that somebody would say, oh, for God's sake, you know, my best friend would say, oh, for Christ's sake, Chris, why did you bother? Why did you bother? You know, you're not a poet. You'll never be a poet, you know. And that, that occurred to me. But do you think that it, uh, that it provides some greater understanding? Or by reading the poems, you think that the readers would get a better appreciation of your art? In as much as I thought it through it all, I was encouraged by people I trusted to believe that at some basic level it was worth publishing, mm-hmm. qualitatively and otherwise. Yeah. Secondly, I felt that it would show a more emotional side of me, a more human side of me, than comes through in my paintings. People often said, for example, the few paintings I've done of the human figure, people often said, well, that my attitude to the figure was cold, that the women in the paintings were objectified, there was no sensual whatnot and all that kind of stuff. 
And my response to that was, uh, some people don't need as much salt on their potatoes as others. <laughs> you know? Uh, some people don't need such as much stimulation to get it going as others. There are things in that book that come close to being uh, descriptions of my marriage or things, you know, you will have picked up. Just this Friday night, God help me, I'm, I've been invited to read at an outdoor thing down at Middle Cove. And so I'm going and I'll read a couple of things out of this book and I've got a... But it'll, it'll, it'll broaden you, I think, probably. That's the thinking, is it? Well, it's, it's, first of all, hell, it's I do it. You know? And it ain't bragging if you've done it. It's, you know, for better or for worse, that book is out there and people are already judging it, ju- judging me. And, and but isn't that exactly what it's... I mean, that's what people do when you read anything course. or you see anything. It's about, do I like it or do I not like it? Yeah. And if, if so, why... Exactly. Why do I like it or not like it? I mean, that's that's whole that's a whole process of, of enjoying and, and participating in art of any kind. And it's it's a raison d'être for its making. Just, I published this book of poetry, or my publisher did, just as my just as the retrospective was going on. Oh right, yeah. Now I and just as I had my seventieth birthday, and so here's evidence of my life's work in terms of paintings, not prints or drawings or all my paintings, but here's evidence of my life's work. Mm -hmm. And after 25 years of vacillation, I've published these poems. So, what, you know, is this a wrap? You know, is is this it? Do I now take the meager sum that my riff will provide me? You know, what's this all about? And, uh, I had no trouble getting back to painting because it's just something I do every day and have done every day since I was 14 to 15, 16 years old. I was more inclined to back off the poetry. I didn't expect to win prizes or anything like that. It largely it has been received with polite, considerate indifference. That's what I would say of it. Nobody's decided to knock old Chris you know, to take take me down a strip or two. After all, I'm 70. I'm an honest-to-God Newfoundlander. I've worked pretty damn hard all my life. Um, I've got a criminal record. You know, all those things that contribute to the general level of acceptance. And people have been kind to me, I think, in, in many ways. At the same time, I've got things in progress. I expect I'll read on Friday night. I have a a poem called Twelve Asterisks, and it starts out, there are twelve asterisks of light across the otherwise drab canvas of my life, and one of them is you. Uh, And then I think it says, but first there was my mother making Christmas cards, the sable brush obeyed obediently the graphite line, and still the poster color blue glows like etc. So, what am I supposed to do? You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm, I, uh, you know, like all people in my generation, and, and then it goes on to say the. Uh, what, are you, what are you supposed to do? Yellow ochre halo blows like burnished gold, and I remember my mother making watercolors. I was about four years old. They were. They were making Christmas cards, really. 
But what what are you supposed to do? You know, uh, you like doing this. You're, it's what you do, uh, and uh, I'll just. I and you, and you put it out there. And you put uh, it out yeah, there. and and like most people my age, I I don't read much. I haven't read much. I come over from my studio and I'm too tired to read. And I always read Harper's magazine. I understand half of it. I understand the socio-political, economic end of it. I don't understand one word of literary criticism, and I'll admit it. You know that. You're reading the wrong critics. Well, that may, that way that may. It's just as an aside. Uh, yeah. uh, I've been reading a bit of uh, the poet Philip Larkin. Yeah. And his uh, his criticism is so joyfully simple. Is that right? Uh, and that it really is and in fact it's funny because you talked to me about the fact that you haven't really travelled around yeah. too much and don't have much of an inclination yeah. to do so unlike uh, you know Graham Greene or yeah. um, Mom or Joseph Conrad and blah yeah. blah blah uh, yeah. but Philip Larkin stayed put in Hull in England for 40 years as well sort of forever uh, yeah, yeah yeah and yeah. uh and yet his criticism is just so beautiful mm-hmm. because it's so damn clear and understandable. Just just like Harold Bloom, I don't know if you've read much of him, but no. he's also a really, he's a critic that I admire mm-hmm. just exactly for that. Yeah. Just, it's so evident that he loves what he's, what he's reading and, and, and thinking about, yeah. and he puts it down in such beautiful, simple terms. Harold Larkin. Harold Bloom. Bloom, Bloom, yeah. Harold Bloom is the American critic. Uh, yeah. uh, Philip Larkin, Philip Larkin. Is, the, uh, is, the, uh, is the British poet. Yeah, yeah. okay. You know, I mean, I, when I was a kid, I did what everybody my generation did. I read Hemingway and Faulkner and Steinbeck and blah, 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 and Dylan Thomas. And, you know, when I was in the university, there were kids who thought they were Dylan Thomas and they ran around in Harris Tweed sports jackets and let their hair grow long before it was stylish and wore a scarf around their neck and, and all that. But I remember... Just to get attention to them. Well, to be Dylan Thomas, just as you know, people think that wearing a, the right kind of beret makes you Picasso or whatever. But I remember there was an introduction to Dylan, one of Dylan Thomas's books. I'm not sure which one it was. It, uh, but in any case, I, as I recall, Dylan Thomas, in talking about his own poetry, said, recounts a story where he was traveling in Wales and he came across a man who was making circles in the clay with a stick and he said to the man who was making circles in the clay with the stick why are you doing that and the man just looked at him and said well I'd be a damn fool if I didn't and that's really the way I feel about things you know other people can judge whether the circles are round or whether they interlock like the rings of the Olympics you know, or whether they form a yen and a yin, or some philosophical thing. But that's no reason why you stop making circles yeah. if you like making circles. You do it because you like doing it. Exactly. And there's there's all sorts of other motivations one could dream mm-hmm. up, but I guess the most powerful one is exactly that. Mm-hmm. It's a childlike joy in playing. And making something that wasn't there before you made it. I'm sorry I got a bit emotional about that, but you see my Please parents. Don't be there's photographs of my parents over there, my mother yeah, and, my, and my father. Um, they're looking at me, or at least dad is. Yeah, they're, they're obviously, though, um, you had good parents. 
My father was a, he was in wholesale hardware, but uh, beyond that, he did a lot of civic things. He was chairman of this and chairman of that and chairman of the other thing. He was a highly pragmatic and practical man. But he loved you and you knew it. Yes, and I would, and he gave me this place. Oh. He gave me this whole place yeah. for a buck. In the exhibit, there's a lovely letter from Lauren Harris yeah. to your father. Yeah suggesting that because of the true talent that, that mm -hmm. you have that he hadn't seen in, in years and years and rarely ever see it yeah. not to become a doctor because it took my dad a long time to get around to that and uh, dad had a uh, dad knew a guy actually the man from whom we bought this house and, and his wife uh, his name was Bill Crosby and he had been the tank in the tank corps with Lauren in Italy Dad knew this. So when he got this letter, he phoned Lauren and he phoned uh, Bill Crosby, and he, you know, he he said to Bill, he asked Bill, "Who is this guy? Has he got all these marbles or what?" You know, Christopher got to make a living yeah. somehow. But I, I just tell, I remember one day in his very room, and I don't go on and on about art very much. You know, it's just not my shtick. But I was talking away about the importance of the artist, the role of the artist in society. And Dad was standing up looking out that window with his arms folded. And he, uh, you know, he put up with this for a little bit. And he came around and looked at me. And he said, you know, Christopher, most people would rather live next door to a good plumber. <laughs> <laughs> a practical man, as yeah, you say. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. But then again, uh, once he's fixed the, fixed the, uh, the pipe, that's great, then you can, you can move on. Whereas with, with what you do, you can really, really enjoy what you do for hours on end, really. Uh, but then again, yeah, yeah. If, as you're, long if you're knee deep in water, it doesn't make, you know, it makes looking at the painting. As long as what artists do doesn't get to be too elitist and esoteric. Yeah. You know, if art is supposed to be a means of communication, then it, then it owes something to the audience. Well, that's the hope. Again, we get back to Larkin. Larkin suggests that because Shakespeare had to appeal to the audience, that's why his stuff is so brilliant and so memorable. It's because he's got the audience in mind. He, exactly. he, in order for him to make a living, he had to get people through the turnstile. Mm -hmm. Speaking with Christopher Pratt one of Canada's foremost uh, artists and he's recently come out with a collection of poetry a sort of a lifetime collection of uh, poet poems that have been written over the past 50 years uh, I'd like to get back to this poem that you haven't published called The Twelve Asterisks mm -hmm. simply because it seems to me then that with that you're making a statement about what has been most important exactly. in your life Publishing these poems obviously is something that's important to you. It, it's not so important. I, the, the twelve asterisk poems. I just want to do it, and I hope somebody will see it eventually. And so far, uh, the, the little bit I blurted through a minute ago was about my, one of my earliest visual re memories of my mother doing Christmas cards. And I did I you do a painting of that, by the way? No, I've never done a painting of it. Why not? Uh, probably because I shy away from narrative content, from overt narrative content in my painting. I think there was a, something about the situation that sure, I could get somebody 
two who looked something like my mother to sit there and sure I could try to remember yeah. what it was and all that but it would just be an illustration. It wasn't as perhaps as accurate or as meaningful as writing something down. For me it, it, it wouldn't work as well but you know it's not all like that. One of the things that's covered in it is the first big salmon I ever caught. Another part was about it is winning a sailboat race in uh, Chester, Nova Scotia, you know, uh, just these things that really do spark out and there are more personal, there are things that there's sexual imagery you'll have to be dealt with, you know, there are episodes, but it's, uh, well, if it works, it's just a potpourri of experiences, it's not going to be 12 different people. Uh, of experiences that you want to bring attention to so that others can what? Understand who you are or share in this sort of epiphany or revelation? It, it's I can make a list in my diary of what I consider to be the 10 or 12 most important encounters or incidents in my life. But I, I don't want it to have, just have to be a list but also I want to structure it. You want to structure it again so you can present it to others. So yes, so I so I can present it. Exactly. Whether I present it in written form or ten minute entertainer when I read it or what. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna try it on Friday night. I, I will not be deterred by by the response. No. No. I'm, I'm just I'm j I'm getting on with it anyway. And just finally, then, the reason that you're getting on with it anyway and presenting it is because you want... This is a way for you to prove that you existed, improve someone else's life? I would like to improve people's lives. I've never known how to do that. Uh, I think the only help I've ever been to my kids, apart from being totally loyal to them and whatnot. I don't know that I've ever given them a word of good advice. I've tried to, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know what direction is truly appropriate for them. So uh, from time to time I've taken the simple expedient of throwing a little bit of cash at things. You got this bill that's boring you, you can't sleep, you're pacing around, hell, get it off your back here. So, uh, yes, I, whatever ability I had, I would like to help lots of people. But, but with your poem, it would be sharing a truth, sharing perhaps providing a little bit of beauty then. I think that for all our complexity and for everything we've got going for us, it, it's interesting to me, as it has been interesting to philosophers for the ages, I'm sure, philosophers I haven't read, that we are all totally and forever encapsulated in our own being. You're you and I'm me and Jeanette's Jeanette and Mary's Mary and on and on and on. And uh, neither neither of us knows, no matter how perceptive we may be. I mean, I may you know you well enough to know that uh, you're tired or, or whatever. But deep inside, nobody, nobody can be anybody else. You just can't be anybody else. So you're isolated in this. And for me, 
I think that any accurate and honest I, I was going to say revelation but I don't like that word indication or evidence that one human being can provide for other human beings as to what he or she has been what the world has been to him I, I think that's important because it's a key to our similarities to our whatever kind of Jungian shared ancestry we have but at the same time it's a key to our individuality helping the other person I think through their lives or, or get thing, get meaning, joy from their life it, it helps you know that you're not alone you know, it helps you know that your that your particular assembly of assemblage of atoms, electricity and whatnot, although forever isolated from any other, shares the same shares properties other than chemical properties. I mean I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm just trying I just want people to know who I am and who I was, not in an arrogant way, but rather because I'd like to know who they were. And uh, I have a friend, I have several friends who've been in politics, and they, you know, they get out of politics and they say, well, you know, I don't know what they're going to do next. And I always think, you know, if you really had the guts to write down exactly what you saw and exactly the decisions you made and how you made them and the compromises you made and the number of times you had to veer from your own principles. I mean, if, if you could really tell us how it was and what really happened, say, in this debate or that debate, so that we could believe it, I would think that that would be one of the greatest contributions such a person could ever make. Doing a service. An absolute service, as opposed to getting a ghostwriter to make him look good. That's the way I feel about it. And the one thing I will say about the poetry, good, bad, or indifferent, is it is honest. It's absolutely honest. It tries not to serve me well, and uh, but at the same time, it's a balance between making a fair disclosure of yourself without making an unfair disclosure about somebody else. Well, thanks very much for oh, sharing. Oh, you're very, yourself. you're very welcome. I appreciate your interest in this. I really do. Thank you for sharing. I've been speaking with uh, Christopher Pratt, who is one of Canada's foremost artists. He's also a writer. He's written uh, a painter's poems published in 2005. 